You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits, B Pro Kennels, Final Rise, and a Nook Shook Professional Dog Food. Big thanks to our title sponsor, B Pro Kennels. B Pro Kennels is a small business creating ultra high quality and custom dog boxes for the gun dog owner like you and I. No matter how big your string of dogs, B Pro Kennels will make sure you have a box that fits your needs for you and your gun dogs. With an innovative storage design and built in solar panel and battery bank for quick access to charging accessories like dog collars, lights, fans, you name it. This is a dog box unlike anything you've seen before. Check them out at bprokennels.com. Oh, and they're made right here in the USA. And this is presented by Anook Shook Professional Dog Food, the world's highest energy dog food, period. Anook Shook's dense formulations ensure your pup in training and your seasoned bird dog get what they need to succeed in the field. High protein for muscle recovery and retention, high fat for quick access to much needed energy. Anook Shook works hard so your dogs can work harder. Check them out at anookshookpro.com. This podcast is also presented to you by Final Rise. All good things start with a solid foundation. At Final Rise, all three of their premium Upland vests are built around the foundational waist belt to provide you all-day comfort and endless customization. With a secure waist belt and thin, high-quality shoulder harness, this is the vest you can load down with birds and walk all day in. Final Rise is creating high-functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort, balance, and a lifetime of memories. Check them out at finalrise.com. And this podcast is sponsored by Trinity Bretons, home of the Epignol Breton, also known as the French Brittany. All Trinity Breton dogs are from champion bloodlines that are field-tested and family-approved. For over 33 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to offer you the best-bred Epignol Breton in the country. Trinity offers puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickox, started dogs, stud services, and a whole lot more. Check them out at trinitybertons.com. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to episode 60 of the Upland Rookie Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Will Larson. Um, I, disclaimer, real quick, if you guys hear a baby cry or do any other, other kind of noises while I'm recording this intro, uh, I'm holding my daughter with me right now. Um, the wife is getting some dinner ready. I'm doing this. Kids are doing their things. So it is what it is. <laughs> Just embrace the baby noises. Um, she's sleeping though. So I think we'll, we should be good. Um, but anyways, guys, I have a great episode for you today. Uh, I'm joined by Alan Hyman. Uh, now I met Alan through uh, Nastra uh, here in the Rocky Mountain region uh, a couple of years ago now, a year and a half ago. Um, him and I have been able to uh, run some Nashra events together. He's been doing this a long time. He is an avid wild bird hunter. Uh, he's got some crazy, really cool adventures and bird trips that he's done. He's he's chased a little bit of everything. Uh, he's got some great dogs that I've seen personally run. Uh, just a great, great dude all around. Ellen um, was one of my, I think I might mention this in the episode as well, but um, Alan was someone who kind of took me under his wing um, in Nashra. 
and really coached me along of like, okay, this is how, this is why, uh, what questions do you have, Will? Like he was very, very influential in my time in Nashra. Um, and so I just, Ellen, thank you. If you're listening to this right now, I pr- appreciate you, uh, the time you took with me and, and some other new people who have, who've entered into Nashra. Um, that I've seen you just, again, answer their questions, talk with them, let them ride along as you are, you know, planting birds or helping judge or whatever it might be. Um, really have appreciated your, uh, your friendship and your mentorship as well. So, um, so I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Alan, um, just again, has, has a lot of cool stories, perspective on trialing and wild bird hunting. And, uh, we'll get to hear and learn a little bit more about that with him. So, um, a couple more things I want to go over before we jump into the episode, um, coming up here. In the next, I don't know, I don't have a timeline exactly, maybe another month or so, we're going to do a episode with uh, the folks from Anookshuk Dog Food, um, and we're going to sit down with them and really kind of tackle and go over uh, some listeners' questions, um, questions that you have about dog food, about nutrition, about Anookshuk Dog Food. Um, what makes a difference? What do you like? What don't you like? And we're going to kind of tackle some things head on with a nook shook, um, on, uh, an episode. So be thinking about some questions you have about a nook shook. Um, maybe you've wanted to try it and maybe just haven't pulled the trigger yet. And, and maybe there's some questions you have. Maybe there's, uh, some things you are wondering about or whatever it might be. Now's going to be a great time. Start thinking about those questions. Um, I'll have you probably email them to me or, um, shoot them over in a message on social media, and then I can compile a list of things and we will tackle these head on with uh, a nook shook. So um, it's a, a great, great food I've been feeding for, gosh, you know, kind of know the story. I was on it for a while, switched off of it and then switched back to it. Um, great food, best dog food I've fed. I've fed two or three other brands, uh, again, for my dogs. And I've, I've seen some things that my dogs on this food that I've been incredibly impressed with. Um, so I can't say enough about it. Get your questions in to me over the next month or so. Um, what questions you have about Anookshuk dog food, nutrition, and we will um, tackle that with the Anookshuk folks. Um, all right. Next thing is the uh, September Patreon giveaway. Uh, September is about halfway through. Um, if you want to get entered into the giveaway, we still have two awesome prizes still up for grabs. We have the Cable Gangs tie-out system and the Gunner Fan Kit 2.0 um, available for the Patreon, uh, whoever wins the next two months. So get signed up on Patreon. Um, just look up Patreon slash the Upland Rookie Podcast. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you can get entered into all giveaways. So you don't want to miss that out as well as a discount on hats. So hats are for sale. I have, a f- uh, I have several of each style left. Uh, I'm, not sold out of, of, I'm not sold out of any style as of yet. Um, so if you want a hat, Patreon members get a discount. So if you want to save some money on a hat and you're thinking about one, that's going to help you as well. So you'll also get entered into the Patreon, uh, the monthly giveaway, as well as discount on hats. So all good things happening over there. Thank you to all my Patreon members as well. Uh, everyone who is a supporter uh, currently, who has, is a member, whether you are a basic wing shooter member, uh, an elite wing shooter, or gold level, thank you guys so much for, uh, again, just, just the time and effort and, and financial support that you are putting forward to help this podcast. And uh, again, everything, uh, just a reminder, everything I make on Patreon, everything I bring in through Patreon goes back into the podcast. I'm not using that to go buy myself McDonald's. <laughs> so just in case you were wondering, it's going back in the podcast, uh, things like hosting fees, uh, audio equipment, uh, things like that. So, uh, moving on to a couple other things. I mentioned the hats already up on rookie hats. Um, there's a sweet, 
there's some sweet styles. They're all leather patches, genuine leather. Um, so make sure you get one. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I did a, a hat run maybe two years ago. I did another one now. And so it's going to be a little while until I do another one. It's just a lot of work and time. So if you want a hat, now is the time to get one. Shoot me a message and we'll get your order in and I'll get it shipped out as quick as possible. Um, all right, last thing, or two things I wanted to go over real quick. Uh, thank you. First off, thank you for, we're, we've hit 60 episodes. Um, thanks for the support and um, just for, for sticking with me for 60 episodes. I know we got a few extra bonus episodes out, so I think we're a little over that as well. But, um, you know, I started this, gosh, was it 21, 2020, early 2021 maybe? Yeah, something like that. Um, I had no clue. I still have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm figuring this out as I go. Um, but I will say that the journey that I've been on uh, getting to interview guests and craft interviews and learn from people and connect with more people on social media, um, it's been so fun and so, um, I, don't know, I don't know what the right term is um, to describe kind of my, the seat I get to sit in and what I get to experience. Um, I've learned so much. I think I've learned way more than I've put into uh, this. <laughs> as I don't know, funny as that sounds, I guess. Um, but engaging with listeners, um, answering maybe you have questions or just hearing hearing how the show has inspired you. Um, I got an email from a gentleman a couple days ago, um, actually a couple weeks ago, to be honest, and I need to respond to him. Um, sent me a really, really long email just on uh, the, the show's impact and his own life, a little bit of his own hunting journey. And, uh, he's a little, little bit older, like 50, 55 years old. And gosh, that, that got me going like that. Uh, again, that's kind of the reason why and I love this so much is yes, the upland rookie. Yes. The upland rookie, you, you hear that at face value. You think, oh, it's just for the young new hunter. That's not for me. No, that this vision, this goal I had in, in this creating this whole podcast was way beyond just the, the title of the upland rookie. It is. I think we all have something to learn still, no matter our age, no matter our circumstances, no matter how much we've hunted, we could have hunted um, one day in the last five years, or we could hunt 50 days in the last <laughs> couple months, wherever you're at on, on the spectrum. Um, avid bird hunter, been doing it for decades, or someone just starting out trying to navigate the waters. Um, I really want to connect with those both both those groups of people, and uh, I think there's a lot of learning and, and inspiration, and um, a lot a lot of good that can happen by bringing those two groups together and learning from one another. So, I hope everything I've been doing uh, through the podcast and social media, all the, all that stuff, um, I hope I've been able to do that. Uh, again, I've heard from some listeners that you know the impact that this has had on them. So, I just want to say thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you for investing in the show, uh, whether it's you know sharing it on social media, whether it's leaving a rating and review, messaging me, and just saying, "Hey, Will, like this episode, you know, helped me in this area, or you know, encouraged me in this in this, or whatever it might be, encouraged me to try a, you know hunting a new bird." getting another bird dog, whatever, whatever it is, guys. Um, I appreciate you being along for the ride and, uh, gosh, I, I, I can't say thank you enough. So anyways, you know, me I'm starting to ramble a little bit. <laughs> I get long winded here. Gosh, I, I thought these intros, I was only going to keep to like five minutes, but okay. Um, last thing I want to share. Um, actually, no, never mind. I'm not going to share that. I'll do it next week. I was going to go over my, my, kind of my top three favorite um, pieces of gear uh, I've used over the last month in uh, this opening season, 2022. Um, just some, some 
yeah, some takeaways, uh, some things I packed in my truck that I was like, well, why did I pack this? <laughs> and some things, uh, some pieces of gear that, um, were just really, uh, I don't know what the word, word is inspiring to me that, that I used on every hunt to a, a serious degree and just thought, Hey, hey these are some kind of my top three. I might have four on there actually like top three pieces of gear that were just lights out incredible. Um, so I'll share those with you next week as well as a couple things. I was like, I don't know why I brought this. It was overkill or it was just not needed. Why, why would I do this? So I'll just share both those things with you on next week's episode. But, um, without further ado, we're going to jump into the episode with Alan Hyman. And, uh, I don't even think he's on Instagram guys. How cool is that? Someone who's not on Instagram. I, I don't even know if he's on Facebook, honestly. Um, so Alan Hyman, here we go. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Alan, we'll, we'll kind of jump in here, brother. Um, can you first, uh, Alan, put us on the map and, uh, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I just turned 60, so that's kind no, of been a highlight. Yeah, no, stop it right there. There's yeah. no way. Yeah, just <laughs> Oh, my 60. gosh. Yeah. I never would have thought that. Oh, well, you're upper, my hero. Upper 40s. Upper Tell 40s. me where I send the beer to. Upper <laughs> 40s, whatever. Um, so, yeah, so I uh, grew up in Manchester, England, industrial England, was a Bobby policeman on the beat. No really? guns. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about guns a little bit later. <laughs> And um, the, living now in Colorado, in Boulder, and uh, what brought me here was climbing. I've been a rock mm. climber since I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. I'm now in my 47th year of rock climbing, and I climb every other day, including Really? Tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, wonder you, no wonder you only look 49. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, as the night goes on, I definitely look older. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um Yes, yeah, so came out here, exchanged uh, 300 days of rain per year for 300 days of sunshine per year. Exchanged the highest peak in Britain being 4,000 feet for now I'm looking at 50 peaks of 14,000 feet. And um, so emigrated, married a gal from Louisiana. Uh, we met in the penthouse suite of the New York Hilton while we were... <laughs> Um, I was a sales director for a textile company in England and she was sales director here. And that's how we met. So moved out to Boulder, um, bought a teeny tiny house, finally got a dog and um, yeah. So emigrated in 1995. Wow. Wow. Started that's, a business. We're entrepreneurs. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. So, so, that's, so, so, so did you literally, you moved to the States because you love rock climbing that much? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know anybody here except my wife, Cheryl. <laughs> so <laughs> we had no awesome. money. Um, just, you know, okay. a dream. Yeah. The American dream. I mean, Absolutely. honestly, yeah. in, in Britain, it's talked about as the American dream and we get sort of used to that sort of cliche term here, but that's what we came for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. so cool, man. And that's the American so West. I mean, you know, the gift of, of public land in the American West mm. is, is unknown anywhere else in the world. Yeah. I mean, there's nowhere else like it in Europe. I mean, the, mm. the availability of, uh, of recreation, you know, for the cost of a hunting license is mm. unmatched anywhere in the world and yeah. wanted to embrace that. That's so cool. Um, yeah. We're, we're going to unpack your, your story a little bit here in a second, but did you, did you do any hunting uh, back in England at all? Or was that a thing at all that you were conscious? It's a of thing. Or? It's a thing. 
if your daddy is called Lord or <laughs> Earl of or something, my daddy worked in an iron foundry. So, no, never even dreamt of it. I mean, never, you know, guns were taboo. You didn't touch a gun. You didn't see a gun. Nobody knew you knew how to gun. Um, the um, all hunting is basically private land, uh, you know, whether it's grouse moors or stag hunting in Scotland. I mean, I fished a little bit. Okay. Um, but not fly fishing. I mean, just float fishing in little reservoirs and stuff. But yeah, yeah no, I mean, nothing at all. Never yeah. even thought about it. Okay. Okay. So, um, well, I, this is a more, a more recent thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, so I posted mm-hmm. an episode a couple of days ago uh, about biking my dog and all that kind of stuff. You sent me uh, kind of a little uh, rig that you're using, uh, biking yeah. your dogs, right? Tell yeah. me a little bit about biking your dogs a little bit. Have you been doing that for a while? And yeah. So, um, you know, the best part of my day is with the dog. And so I love to get out and get some exercise every day. So figure, put those two things together. The dog's happy and I'm happy and we're fortunate. I mean, right from the house, we can get access to trails without, um, um, without having to drive. And so, um, yeah, it's something I've been doing, um, you know, conditioning the dog sort of like, the musher style, you see the musher dogs and the way that they run, they really dig in hard with the back legs. And you see it when a dog runs, it's got a really nice smooth gait. You see really good muscle development, particularly in the back. Mm. And so, um, yeah, sort of investigated that and do that on the local trails. And then, uh, came up with this outfit out in Breckenridge actually. Um, and it's a mushing company and he developed this, uh, retractable reel with a bungee cord that you can either attach on the front of your bike, uh, which is mostly what, what they do and, um, put the dog in a mushing harness. You, d- you don't want to try and do that with your dog on his normal collar. And the, the reason you don't is if you do that, you're teaching the dog to pull when he's on a leash and you want to separate that out from when he's in a, a pulling harness, such as a mushing collar, that's when he can pull. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun and dogs yeah. learn, really quickly how to you know go in a straight line how you turn them the trail goes to the left trail goes to the right i've actually got a setup for two dogs i can do two dogs at a time i haven't tried that yet i haven't i I want to but i gotta get my younger one a little bit more a little bit more comfortable with it but yeah definitely want to try yeah do that when the trail's really quiet so you know you've not got somebody coming towards you and the young dog goes on one side of a runner and the (laughs) old dog goes on another you got big apologizing (laughs) (laughs) some big problems happen yeah but it's you know roading dogs um is the traditional form of conditioning Mm. um give them some resistance nolan for example we talked about him used to used to have his dog tow a a tractor chain oh really conditioning yeah oh and um and you know the horseback guys rode him off horseback Mm. Um, down in the South, they rode them off ATVs. They'll have a rack with maybe four or five dogs. I've seen that. Yeah. Off of an ATV. I'm not particularly a huge fan of that. I think if you're on a bike or you're walking or running, you've got some give. Um, so you're less jarring on the dog is, is my take on it, but it's just fun exercise yeah. for you. Fun exercise for the dog. It's great. Yeah, it is. I highly I, recommend I, it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Good little summer activity. Um, yeah. so, okay. So you moved to the States, you, you mm-hmm. love rock climbing, you met your wife. When mm-hmm. did, when did hunting become a thing for you? When did like what, and, and I guess, how did that unfold of you getting into hunting? Well, it's interesting. So, you know, I've been climbing forever and I'm sort of a planner. 
So I started to think in my mid 40s, okay, I've been climbing for 30 years. What happens when I'm 75 and I can no longer climb at a satisfactory level? Then what do I do? Do I go in a deep funk? I've got to find another couple of legs to this stool that I call life, right? Because I'm a believer that if you put every egg in one basket and that basket gets a hole, you're in trouble. So we actively looked for some other outdoor activities that I could do that were a little more skill-based because I believe that you can be a better wing shot when you're 80 than you are 60. I believe you can be a better fly caster when you're 80 than you are 60. But you can also take both of those activities to a very physical level, chucker hunting being a perfect example. So um, so that was my, my path. I wanted to find other activities and, uh, and ones that my wife was also equally passionate about. Mm. So... Um, so then there's a story about how we ended up being hunting, but there was actually a concerted effort to find something else so yeah. that I could, you know, grow old gracefully and not get angry with myself when I couldn't make it up that one particular climb <laughs> that I've done forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, yeah. man. That's awesome. So then, so then what was, I guess, what, what was that tipping point then to say, okay, hunting was it? hunting with bird dogs, Upland, Upland honey was your thing. Like what was that tipping point yeah. to, to lead you down that Let path? Let me back up to how, it, how I started with climbing because I'll segue into how I started hunting and give you a, a little insight to my crazy personality. So <laughs> as a family, we went on a holiday in Scotland and I was 13 years old at the time. My dad was reading a book called uh, Joe Brown, The Hard Years, about a famous British climber. And we hiked up Ben Nevis, which I, as I said, was is 4,000 feet. I mean, I live at 5,600 feet. <laughs> And uh, dad had read this book and I read that book, <clears throat> closed up the book, was 13 years old and said, okay, from now on, I'm going to be a rock climber. I'd never seen anybody climb. I'd never climbed. I didn't know anything about it, but I just knew that's what I was going to do. Fast forward. How did I get into bird hunting? So my wife and my brother-in-law conspired to buy me a shotgun. I'd never owned a gun. British. We don't do guns. You're like, nope. And even as a policeman, no guns. I mean, you just don't. So um, my wife was brought up in Louisiana, license plate as a sportsman's paradise. Everybody hunts. So they conspired to get me a Benelli shotgun, presented it to me at our anniversary in Thanksgiving. So I'm saying, well, what do you do with this? And they said, well, here we shoot deer with them with slugs, but everywhere else they bird hunt with them. I swear to God, I went down to the store and got a copy of Pointing Dog Journal, <laughs> opened it up, and in the inside cover was a picture of a dog on point. Hmm. And I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And I had never shot the gun yet, <laughs> never owned a dog yet. I'd never hunted any kind, not even a dove hunt, a deer hunt, anything. I said, I'm going to be a bird hunter from now for the rest of my life. Uh, this is awesome. God, that's exactly yeah, right. awesome. Got, so you got the gun, you went and picked up a magazine. You're like, all yeah. right, this, yep. this, this caught my attention. Yep. <laughs> so let's get started. So we went down to the Denver Sportsman Show. And of course, we're in our mid 40s and in Colorado. And I said to my wife, let's walk around and find somebody that treats us seriously that can teach us how to bird hunt. And so we walked around and we bumped into the folks from uh, Valhalla and the Bluffs Hunt Club out oh, yeah. in, in yep. Colorado. 
And we've been lifelong friends since. Mm. And they, we went on a test hunt. We joined their club. We bought my first dog from them. It was a great dog. And, you know, just got got on the bandwagon. That's so cool. That's yeah. so cool. I love, I love a hollow. That's, that's a, that's a little part of my story too, being out here and just going oh, there yeah. and learning from them. And they, they do some great stuff over there. Yeah. It was that's- interesting. I'll tell you how we bought the first dog. And there's a story about how we got the dog, but one of the things that, that I realized early on that you don't just buy a dog that's trained and go out hunting. Sure. There's a, you know, you've got to read the dog. You've got to be able to handle the dog. You know, how do you get the most, both, uh, out of this, uh, this teamwork. Hmm. So when I bought my first dog, the training schedule we had was the dog went to the kennel for a, a week to be trained. I'd take him over on a, a Wednesday. We'd do drills with him. He'd stay at the kennel. I'd go pick him up the following Wednesday. We'd find out what he had learned. I brought him home for a week, had drills at home, and we oh, did that wow. all the way through the summer. One week on and one week off. So that's I was getting as much training as he was. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's sometimes the hardest thing is, is making sure the owners are learning <laughs> what oh. the dog and how to handle a dog. And yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, how many pros will receive a dog from somebody and say, Hey, I need this dog ready for hunting season. And they get the dog, you know, totally ready to go, you know, force broke to retrieve, you know, steady on birds, handling beautifully. And a month into hunting season, the handler calls and said, well, you didn't train my dog properly. This dog's a mess. Well, no, you're just not handling him in a way that gets the best out of him. Exactly. So it sounds so, like from the, from the beginning, it sounds like you wanted to be pretty hands-on. You wanted to be in that process of training and all, and all that stuff as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, studying a new activity and getting into the weeds on how it works and um, and exposing yourself to something new, something you didn't know. There's some anxiety, right? I mean, in your mid-40s, taking on an activity that you knew absolutely nothing about and going to a sporting show and talking to these guys that have been hunting their whole life and Mm -hmm. saying, well, I'm going to ask you some stupid questions now because I know nothing about this. I mean, this, you know, it takes, there's some anxiety there. Uh, But there's great growth too because, you expose yourself to, and everybody wants to share knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that's what you learn. So yeah. uh, I, I was going to ask you, cause I, I find that pretty fascinating. Again, you, you didn't get into this now until you're what mid late forties. And yeah. I was going to ask like, what was that? Like, what was that like? Like what, what was maybe the biggest hurdle in becoming a, a bird hunter with your own dog a little bit later in life? Like were there any challenges that you kind of had to like push through and just kind of lean into, or is it, is it just, Asking the yeah, question. well, uh, you know, when you start something new, you don't know what you don't know, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You don't even know the questions to ask um, because you have no frame of reference. You have no uh, sounding board for it. So, I mean, the best thing is, is to find somebody, a hunt club, uh, hopefully with some dog training facilities, maybe uh, maybe a um, little clay, a couple of clays throwers. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, gun safety, gun handling, wearing orange, you know, everything. And um, again, you've, you've got to be, expose yourself. You've got to say, I just don't know, but I want to learn. So the thing is, is find something that inspires you, that makes you want to go on. So I'm a big reader. So I'll read a book and I'll read a story. You know, there's some great old bird dog writers, right? I'm sure you've got some of them on your library shelf and they're so inspirational. So read some of those stories. They will, you know, talk about, you know, days of field with their favorite dog, their young puppy and all the mistake or their aging dog on his last and final hunt or 
great days with now departed friends. And, and it gives you this sense of who you want to become mm. and uh, what your end goal is. And that can give you the strength to push through the insecurity of not knowing exactly how to get there. But when you are there, you'll know it. And mm. so that's what I do. I, I read and create an aspirational picture for myself in whatever task I'm doing. Oh, and that, that's, that gets that's you good. Through. I love that. I love that. What, um, tell me a little bit, like, what are you hunting most when when you're out up on bird hunting? I guess, what's your, what's your mix of, is it pheasant, chucker, huns? And what what are some of the places you've gotten to travel to, uh, to hunt up on birds? Well, we get to travel a lot. I mean, um, my wife and I both do it. So it's not like I have to get, um, a kitchen pass to, uh, to escape. That's that's nice. That's helpful. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, she until recently was, you know, handling her own dogs competitively at a national level, very competitive. So um, we'd get to know one of the great things about uh, trialing um, locally is you meet a lot of local dog people and find out about local areas and local clubs and where to get birds from and stuff. But as you um, travel more extensively, either, you know, throughout the Western United States or nationally, you meet people nationally and you've got similar interests. So you get a lot of contacts. Mm. To, to, to go different places. And like we were talking um, earlier about uh, the Montana national trial. The greatest thing about that trial is it's at the start of grass season. So <laughs> it's you know, perfectly you timed, perfectly timed unless and, you're having a baby. Perfectly. Uh, unless you're having a baby next year. <laughs> Think how great your dog's going to be by next oh, year. Oh, hundred percent. It's already circled on the calendar. Right. So you go there and the worst thing that can happen is if you get knocked out of the trial, get to go hunting for a few days. Yeah. So, I mean, through that formula, we've hunted. I made some notes of some of the states because I know I'd forget them, but obviously Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Texas, Kansas, oh, wow. North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Alaska. I mean, just Jeez. everywhere. Oh, man, that's a, that's a list right there. Yeah. I yeah, mean, mostly, you know, mostly Western stuff. Yeah. Um, haven't hunted rough grouse yet. I heard one of you. Okay. Previous episodes talking about yes, and um, that'd be fun. Would 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 like to do that. Um, I'm a prairies guy, wide open. I yeah. nothing better than for me than seeing a dog on point 400 yards away. That that walk between here here and there, even if it's straight uphill, yeah. is the most exciting walk <laughs> you will ever do in your life. And so I'm not quite sure how that uh, transfers into the grouse wood, you know, where you don't see a dog. <laughs> That's a tough thing. Is there, is there, you have to kind of give up some things. If you want to go hunt, yeah. you know, grouse in the North woods, then you got to give up maybe a prairie trip or right. like those are, those are things that wreck through my brain. I'm like, well, is it, cause I, I'm, I'm with you a little bit. I love the prairies. Love just seeing the dogs on point. Yeah. Um, again, yeah. rough grouse sounds amazing. Sounds great. But I'm like, okay, well, I might have to give up a, give up another trip. So yeah, but I think, you know, again, you, you read the the books of the romantic old writers who would have Mm -hmm. a way to talk about these things. And a a lot of those old boys hunted rough grouse and I want to do at least one trip just so that I can live, live that, um, you know, but I, but I think the prayer is for me, yeah. You know, anything within a, a day's drive is, uh, is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah. Um, have you, you hunt chucker quite a bit too, right? Is yeah, that, that's my favorite bird. Is it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I, okay. I got to ask Colorado guy to Colorado guy. Have you found them in Colorado ever? Yes. 
You have. Oh, you lucky mm-hmm. son of a gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe the only yeah. person. Well, one other person has, has found them in Colorado. Yeah. So. Um, I don't hunt them in Colorado. Um, the population is really thin. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where they are, but I. No, no, no. Find, but I, I, they're not um, not in big enough quantities to put like a week road trip into, sure. you know. Um, I came across them hunting grouse. Oh, cool. Isolated. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Very yeah. cool. I mean, you know, there are some better known pockets like uh, there's some uh, down in the Gunnison, the Gunnison River. Uh, again, not that many. There's a great trip to be done there where you, Cheryl and I did this, you float the Gunnison River, <laughs> fly fishing, and take your dog and a shotgun. Oh, nice. And you pull over to the side, you you either see the birds or hear the birds chuckling on the, the high mesas and pack away your fly rod. Oh, like that's cool. And that's a great trip. But again, they're not in the quantities. Sure. But the big chuck estates, but yeah. I mean, there's some pockets. It's something. It's something. Yeah. 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 Um, what are, what are, thinking back on this, this past season, what are maybe some things you, you took away? Maybe some things you learned this past season, uh, hunting with your dogs, your wife, your friends, what, what are maybe some of the things that, that stick out to you? Um, climate change and drought is a real thing mm. and it's killing our bird population. Mm. Um, I found a lot of places that would normally have good cover overgrazed. Um, that was kind of disappointing. I'm hoping it's a cycle. Um, I'm hoping I do better at finding the good places. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Don't yeah, we all. exactly. That's the magic. Yeah, Always yeah. looking for little hints. I'll see a photograph of somebody. I'm not big on tailgate shots, you know, of, of you know, uh, yeah, the harvest the day. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, not big on that. I mean, I'm not really, I'm not a social media guy of any kind, but um, so that was a concern because uh, I hunt, you know, just me and Cheryl or me and a friend mostly. And so that was disappointing. The, the thing that I've really focused on as far as dogs is emphasizing the importance of a durable dog, a dog mm-hmm. with a lot of bottom, mm-hmm. a dog with tough feet, a dog that you can hunt, you know, typically on a chucker day, unlike a lot of types of hunts. I don't know if you've wild chucker hunted much at all, but not yet. Typically, you don't. It's not like you put the dog out for an hour, come back for the to the truck and get another dog. Mm. You're gone for the whole day. Mm. So the dog has to have an all day gait. You know, not not eyeballs out for the first thirty minutes, but a gait that can take them all day. So a low water dog, a tough footed dog, mm. dog with dog with a lot of lot of physicality. Because mm. um, it doesn't matter how great your dog is. If they're pooped out after 45 minutes, what do you got? It's no good. Yeah. I mean, 45 minutes, you're not even a mile from the truck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, so, so. <laughs> uh, that's what, that's what I've learned. I've really, it really brought home to me some of the, uh, climactic problems we're having in the West. And I, again, I hope it's uh, cyclic. Sure. Um, but again, in, in, in future dogs that I have and my current, the current way that I'm, developing dogs now i'm really focusing on um on endurance a lot of bottom yeah that's good that's really that's a good good insight right there um let's get into your dogs a little bit so do you just have the two two gsps right now i have two that are trial okay. um we have an older one 
and we've had a lot of dogs in the past. I mean, uh, as many as seven. Um, but really what I find is I can only put so much time into my dogs Mm. and I either have one or two that I spend a lot of time with and develop fully and become real partners with, or on a training day, um, everybody suffers because I might only be able to spend 15 minutes with each other. Yeah. You're thinned out between all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there's a lot of guys in the competitive world that um, that have told me, and we're now just just now learning this and adopting it for ourselves. That the best kennels, they have as big a back door as they do a front door. Mm. In other words, if you're running trial dogs, not every dog is going to make it. Mm. And Cheryl and I have been down the path that, well, we'll run Billy for one more season. You know, we'll just train him a little bit better. And some dogs. They just don't have it, but it doesn't mean that they won't be great dogs for somebody else. And I've got an old friend, Doc Ramsey, and you'll, I'll introduce you to him when I meet you out in Montana, cause he's got a place up there. He said to me, Alan, he said, is it better for a dog that he's the number three dog in your kennel or the number one dog in somebody else's kennel? Ooh. And that's just a wonderful way to think about it. Wow. And uh, there's lots of uh, people out there that would love to have a well-trained dog that maybe isn't quite competitive enough to be a field trial dog, but can still be a wonderful personal hunting dog. Yeah. So I'm going with that. That's a a quote of the podcast right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. How did you land in the GSP? So again, you started hunting a little bit later in life, just getting into this, learning like the bird dog. What led you to the GSP? Interesting question. I think if the first dog I got was a pointer, if I was a specific pointer kennel, I'd be in pointers. I think it's like if your granddaddy drove a Chevy mm. and your dad drove a Chevy, your first, first pickup truck's likely to be a Chevy. And you're probably going to be a Chevy devotee forever. Sure. Um, so we started off at a local kennel called um, Valhalla, and they happened to have good short hairs. And so we got lucky with our first dog. and. I think when you spend as much time with a breed, you sort of get comfortable. I think they've all got quirks. I think any breed can be great. I really do. I think there's great dogs in every breed. That's one of the great things about Nastra. It's not breed specific. Mm. As long as you're a registered pointing breed, you can be a national champion. Sure. Um, But we just got comfortable with the short hairs. A great combination for us. I've got one here laying on the sofa with me right now. Um, just a great balance between a couch dog and a full-on bird dog. And, um, but you know, I've had, we had a pointer. She might've been the sweetest dog we ever had. Um, had a Cocker Spaniel. I would have another Cocker Spaniel, um, just to round out the pointing breeds, but, yeah, I, you just get comfortable with something. And then as you get into it, you know how it is. I, I'm sure with your dog now, you've got a couple of great dogs and you're sort of thinking, well, okay, who do I breed my dog to, right? So, right? I mean, that's the natural yep. progression of us dog yep. people. Totally. And so by the very nature of that thought process, you generally stick with that breed, 
right? Because you you kind of get so you get so deep into it every two sometimes, just by nature or by choice that you yeah you get far enough down the path and you're like all right well (laughs) well you're in a field trial and you see in your case you see another britney that does really well well you go talk to that guy hey how's your britney bread oh that's really cool who do you know oh i know him and all of a sudden you you extend your um your network through through the breed that you're in hey your dog's really great hey similar bloodlines you know maybe if that dog turns out, maybe that would be a good cross, you know? And so you, you, you generally continue. So I've got a uh, frozen semen on a stug dog now that I've used before, and I'm looking for the right female for, for him uh, right now. So obviously mm-hmm. from that alone, I'm going to stay with short hairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, have you gone down the breeding path before? Was, was, is this your first attempt or? We have, um, we've let, Friends have use of frozen semen on our on our dog Boomer, um, and I've got a couple of females now. Um, one of which that I'm a fifty percent owner of. He's actually in our club. Okay, uh, you'll you'll know the dog, young dog, beautifully bred, uh, both top and bottom of the dog. Um, direct parents are national champions, and the depth is just unbelievable probably really good genetics to go somewhat line bred with my stud dog. So we're looking at that. We'll see how that dog turns out. She's not even quite two yet, but that's, that's kind of where I'm going. And, and as I get more into it, I know the kind of characteristics that I want in a dog. Sure. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going way more for, for endurance. Yeah. That's, uh, that's one of the beautiful things is being in this, the longer you're in it, I've been, let's say five years now and you get to start to yeah. see like you mentioned characteristics of dogs things you like things you don't whether it's build or style or d- those different characteristics i think that's that's a fun part that we get to yeah. start evaluating and, and seeing in our dogs you know the more you're in it the more dogs you see that's that's a cool part yeah i think when we i think we we grow in that i certainly have and i think uh, you probably have too and will continue to it does start out with looks. It's like, mm-hmm. that's a cool looking dog. Well, when you've never run a bird dog, how do you know if it's a good dog or not? <laughs> right, I mean, right. When somebody said to me, well, how did you choose your first dog? I said, I've no idea. It's like going into a Ferrari showroom trying to buy a race car and you don't know how to drive. It's yep. like, how do you know? And, yeah. and so you start out there. And of course, if you want to sell the cute puppy, to your wife, you definitely get a Brittany because totally. they're nice, <laughs> right, fluffy. Yeah. And this will never be a big dog and all that. <laughs> and then um, that goes on for a few years. And then um, there's other things that you start to, to look at. And the health is huge. Yeah. No point having a pretty dog if they're laying at three years old. Yeah. Um, no point having a pretty dog if they find one bird in a 30 minute brace and all your other dogs find three or four birds in a 30 minute brace. Yeah. So yeah. you start to move towards structural. You, I look at gait a lot, the way a mm-hmm. dog runs a lot. Um, so for gait, for those listening, gates, is, is that the, they're kind of their stride and kind of how they're extending their legs, right? Yeah. It's, um, you know, I'm a short hair guy, right? I mean, the original uh, German import, you know, German short hair, right? Mm-hmm. They came from Germany. Um, they were much bigger and heavier dogs, you know, 85, 90 pound dogs. And so they did not have a, a smooth gait. They have a very choppy gait. And 
um, they were bulky, so they're carrying a lot of weight. So you get a lot more jarring on the joints. And the problem with that is, is that um, do you think a 70-year-old linebacker is going to be able mm. to um, take out the trash easier than a 70-year-old marathon runner? Mm. Tell you what I think. So <laughs> I, I'm going for lighter built dogs. And again, it, it goes into uh, endurance or bottom, as we call it in the game. If a dog is really moving easily and gracefully through the cover, not only is it pretty to watch, and it's pretty for judges to watch, and you'll get scored appropriately. If a dog's pretty in its movement, that keeps a judge's attention. It matters, yeah. If, if a easy, an easy-moving dog is not working as hard to cover those miles. Mm. So if it's an 80-degree day, and one dog has a really choppy gait, like they really find it hard to make it, you know, easily. And another dog is just breezing along. Which dog do you think is going to find more birds? Which dog is going to be strong at the end of 30 minutes or 30 miles if you're chucker hunting? And so I'm going more for that. I really like gait. So, so if I'm looking at a potential female to breed to, as well as all the standard bloodline thing, you know, what's sure. the history of the parents? I, I want to know, would I, would I take any one of their parents? That's one of my key mm. things, picking out a puppy. If you see the sire in the dam, would you gladly own any one of those dogs? Mm. Or does one of those dogs have a serious flaw that you just hope doesn't get transferred into the line? Yeah, that's good. I'm really looking at gait. Yeah. Because really it's a well stress said. element. When a dog's stressed, how can they be smelling birds when they're running with their mouth open, mm -hmm. um, you know, 15 minutes into a run? How is that dog going to find as many birds as a dog that's super well conditioned with a really smooth yeah. you know, gazelle-like gait? Yeah. Just want to take a minute and thank our sponsors of the podcast, B Pro Kennels, Final Rise, Anook Shook Professional Dog Food, and Trinity Bertans. Now guys, I am not all about pushing products or, or things that you don't need on you, but I am about working with companies that I really, really love and believe in and who are just run by great, great people. And all four of these companies um, have been huge supporters of the show. Um, people who I am actually friends with outside of just any kind of ad or sponsorship deal. So I just want to thank them for, again, their support, their belief in the show. Um, again, they're a great company is putting out great products, great dogs with Trinity Bertans, obviously. And so just want to thank them uh, again for their time and effort into the Upland Rookie podcast. Uh, so without further ado, back to the interview. Oh, that's well said. That's Love that. <laughs> that's that's good. Yeah. Good thing to look at. A lot of people don't don't you know think about that sometimes. They'll look at the bloodlines, of course, but some of those yeah. little littler things you just don't think about all the time. So, um, how did Nashra come about for you, or or test or trials? What what was the kind of that evolution of going? Okay, I want to you know get into this whole game now. Uh, how did that come well, about for you? It's it's interesting. So, you know, you want to start hunting, so you get a dog and. You go through your first, you anticipate your first hunt season. I mean, we're all dreaming of September 1, right? And hopefully cooler temperatures and a nice wet spring. And up north, they're having a little bit of a wet spring. Um, closing Yellowstone gives you a sign there's a wet spring going on up there. <laughs> and um, so you get all excited. And then 
you know, all of a sudden the end of the season, now what? So, you know, Nastra was formed to basically give you something to do with your dog outside of the hunting season. So that's a huge advantage. Um, I also enjoy the camaraderie of it. So my wife and I hunt together or I'll hunt usually with one other person. I'm not a guy that I, I will hunt with four or five people, but I will never expect it to be a productive hunt. There's just too many moving parts, too many people blowing whistles, too many people in the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> when you need to shoot. Um, so being at a field trial event, uh, bearing in mind, you might only be running one hour out of an eight hour day. If you're running one dog and a lot of time to visit and sure. look at other people's dogs and, uh, and build your network and it gives you something to train for. And so, if you're at all competitive and you do some of your own training, you want to see how your dog stacks up hmm. to everybody else. And of course, show up in a competition and <laughs> see where you are. <laughs> exactly. What's better? What's better? Yeah. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So we went, we, we thought we had a decent dog, but we didn't know. So we went to our first Nash, Nastra trial. And the reason I hesitate on pronunciation there was it was also a national trial. Oh, and it was in um, just north of here in a field trial ground you, you haven't seen yet. We don't, we're not able to use it anymore. And it was a national trial, dogs from all over the country. And I thought it was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. And that was your first experience checking it out? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So then the local club um, was just coming out with the amateur division. Hmm. And so I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start that and I'm going to, use that as my sort of launching pad. Then I had a dog and he, he placed in his first couple of amateur trials. And so, you know, you know how it is when you get a couple of placements, you're completely hooked, right? Oh it, yeah. One place. It's all one placement. It's all it takes. Uh, it's all it takes. It's all it takes. <laughs> Something you can take home to the family and yeah, makes, you're up and running. Makes the whole, you know, whole weekend being away worth it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, uh, you, you probably remember. Course, uh, and then shortly after my wife wanted her own dog. And so then it became sort of a family thing. Got you hooked. Got yeah. you hooked. Have yeah. you have you ever tried any other types of tests or trials, or was it, you tried the Nastra and it got you hooked pretty fast? Yeah. So um, tried some hunt tests. Okay. And um, enjoyed it. I think um, a pretty good plan for somebody who maybe wanted to start field trialing would be to do a couple of hunt tests first, mm. particularly puppy stakes. Um, the problem with competitive bird dogs is, you know, in Nastra, we run 32 dogs in a field. There's only three getting placements, right? Sure. So 29 dogs are going home disappointed. Sure. Whereas in a pass fail hunt test environment, particularly in a puppy stakes, yeah. I mean, really pretty much every dog should pass. And I sure. think it can give you some encouragement and at yeah. the same stakes, then you'll, you'll see other people competing at other levels, maybe senior or master. And so you'll get to kind of mm. watch some of that and see if you want to go to the, to the next step. So um, I'll be honest, I am not a, a huge devotee of the hunt test. I think a great hunt test dog, for example, a you know, multi-master hunter pointing dog, is not a dog I would want. Mm. And that's controversial, but I'll tell you why. Mm. Those dogs 
have to be so tuned into the handler. Hmm. Like even if the handler blinks to the right, he expects the dog to be over to the right. And they're so um, push button. I think hmm. another one of you guests mentioned uh, push button dogs. Sure. And um, that's a problem because a really great hunting dog and a really great Nastra dog is very obedient and in tune with you, but also a self-starter. Hmm. They're going to go deep into that corner. They're going to go 50 yards past the other dog to find that bird. Hmm. And they're going to try your patience sometimes, yeah. but they're not running in the field with 50% of their brain plugged into what your next command is going to be. Hmm. They're running in the field with 90% of their brain focused on finding the next bird. That's the dog at one. And the other reason is when, when you talk about a test dog, like if a, if a AKC dog has two perfect bird contacts, like perfect one, right? But you still have another 10 minutes to go before your time slot is over. The last thing you want to do is to have your dog find another bird. Oh. You know why? Because then you have an opportunity to make a mistake. Ooh, I did not know and that. And if you make a mistake, you pick your dog up, and it doesn't matter how great you were on the first two finds, you're going home. Wow. So an astro dog or a hunting dog, okay, we made a mistake on this bird. I'm not real happy about it. Sure. Let's go find another. <laughs> right. Cause Nashua, your score is not going down. No. Basically. Yeah. You're saying no, no score for exactly. a, a messed up bird or, or yeah. a mistake. So you've always got a chance to pull it back around and, and let's go find another, yeah. you know, I, I don't really want to try and pull my dogs away from bird contact. I don't want to put them in a sure. situation where if you find another bird, you might eliminate us when we could be, in a past situation right now. So for all that sort of control um, part of it, it's, it's fun. I'll do more, but it won't be a focus. Sure. Absolutely. And how, uh, talk about your dogs, how, what have you done with them in Nestra? The ones you're, you're trialing quite a bit, where, what have, have they reached a championship, a couple championships? Where, where are they? Yeah. At? So uh, almost every dog that I've ran, has been at least a champion. Um, three of them are in the Rocky Mountain Hall of Fame. Um, we have an eight-time champion. Oh, wow. We have a five-time champion that not only placed in the national trial, came second runner-up in a national trial, that's a 192-dog trial, wow. and came second runner-up in the Performance Award, which is a combination of national trials and weekend trials all year for every dog in the country. Oh, wow. Uh, dog I have on the sofa here now is a Colorado Hall of Fame dog. He's a five-time champion, and he's got all his first-place points for his six-time champion. Um, I've got the, the two dogs I'm running now are both regional champions. One of them won it last year. Um, one of them won it this year, and he's my young pup who – He's only 17 months old. So yeah, we've, we've had, yeah, we've had some I would, I would say that's pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah. But it's like anything. Um, we've traveled a lot, yeah. you know, you never win it all. And there's a lot of luck in Nastra. I mean, you know, there's five birds planted in a field. 
if your dog goes left and that's where the two birds are planted and the other dog goes right and that's where the three almost doesn't matter how good you are. You're probably not going to win that day. Um, so what I, what I do, I want to find a dog with talent and I want to train it to be the best that it could be. And I want to be the best handler that I can be so that if lady look shows her face, you're ready. In a position your dog's to take ready. Advantage of it. But it won't always happen. Yeah. I mean, we might have the best dog in the field, but we're certainly not going to win every time because there's, so much to chance. And that's one of the great things about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no guarantees at all. No. And, and part of it is when, when you have a bad piece of luck, like your dog gets ready to point a bird and the bird pops. Okay. As you know, that's no score. So if you then become all dejected and start complaining to the other handler or complain about the bird planner or, you know, develop this negative air about yourself, your dog's going to feed off that. Mm. And so there's lots of things you can learn from how you handle yourself to yeah. set yourself up for yeah. success for the next 28 minutes of the race. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I've tried to explain this on a, on a previous podcast a while back, kind of, um, and I think these, so I have two questions for you. I think they go yeah. hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So part one is, can you explain kind of the scoring system of Nastra, uh-huh. kind of a, an overview of what that looks like? Mm-hmm. And then the second part of that, talk about the strategy of, of running this game and sure. maybe, maybe some basic strategies. I, I, don't, I don't need to know your strategy. We're not trying to copy you, but for someone <laughs> listening, maybe who, who wants to try Nastra or get into it, like, like what, it, what is, if any, can a strategy be when you're, you're hitting the field? Well, let's talk about uh, the scoring probably first. One of the nice things about the game, as opposed to horseback or AKC, is that it's objective to a large part. In other words, if you point a bird, you're going to get a score. Um, Now, it is variable from zero to 100 based on the quality of that point. We call it a find. And I won't get into what is a positive trait, but we all know. I mean, we all know. I mean, you know, you have a gasp of breath when you see a dog hitting a beautiful find. You know, they might come crosswinds, they may, uh, nose goes up in the air, they try and stop, they can't, they skid into it, dust flies everywhere, they stand up and they look beautiful for every second until the handler gets there. They never look around, their tail's not flagging, their head's high. You know, that's what we all dream of. That's why we run bird dogs. <laughs> and so you get scored. So a, a typical master event, um, if you want me to go into that, typically a 40-acre-plus field, Uh, Two handlers drawn at random. You sit in a blind while five birds are planted. You come to the line, um, and there's a judge typically on an ATV, sometimes horseback, but typically on an ATV following each dog. And that judge is judging the dog, not you, the dog. And so every time the dog goes on point, you get a score for that find. So uh, the find is acknowledged. You go in, you'll flush the bird, shoot the bird, and you get a score for the retrieve. Um, so every find and every retrieve is scored. There is one score per brace for ground coverage. And this is the judge's view of how the dog covers the ground. I mean, did he hunt all reasonable location? Did he cover the ground? Well, was he hunting or was he head racing the other dog? Did he potter at your feet or did he reach out and go to all the corners? All those kind of characteristics. Mm -hmm. There's another score for obedience. Is the dog obedient? 
Now, if you whistle three times at your dog and call his name and he doesn't turn, that's not obedient. Mm. If your bracemate whistles one time at his dog and the dog turns, that's obedient. Mm. Um, if the dog, even without verbal commands or whistling, if the dog is keeping track of the handler, so if you're walking to the middle of the field and all of a sudden you decide to go to the back right corner, so you turn and go to the back right corner, your dog should be checking in with you. Look up. Oh, dad's going to the back right corner. Let me go. He wants me to go over there, go in front. That's excellent obedience. Mm. You haven't said anything to that dog, but that's excellent obedience, mm. right? You cued so, off your body language. Cueing off. And that's why the game is a wonderful partnership between handler and dog. It's not yeah. just... The dog is out there doing all the work and the handler just hangs on for the ride and shoots the bird when the dog stops. There's a wonderful partnership in the game. Um, so so that's uh, there's also um, the, the honoring. So, you know, we all know that if, if, if dog A in the field points and dog B sees dog A pointed, then we really want dog B to stop and look like he's pointing. We call it obviously honoring. Sure. And it's a wonderful thing to see. It's a very difficult thing to train hmm. um, because now what you're saying is to your dog, well, I've spent your whole life teaching you to go on point when you smell a bird, right? That's what I want you to do 99% of the time. But now I want you to go on point when you see another dog on point. That's a really hard thing to train. If new, your dog does new that concept, yeah. Yeah. So um, you get one chance to, uh, to, to score that, and that's zero to 75. Mm. So uh, the good thing is if your dog finds a lot of birds, even if they don't do their work perfectly, mm. you'll get a good score against another dog that looks beautiful but only finds one bird. Mm. <laughs> Those finds matter. <laughs> Yeah, four sloppy finds will always be one perfect find every day of the week. <laughs> but that matches what we want, right? In our dogs, yeah. we want bird finders. That's yeah. what we want. That's we, want. We, we got into this, and most of us probably got into this because we love hunting behind our dogs. Yeah. We love, love them hunting. to find find the game and, and point it. And so, yeah, might not be pretty yeah. all the time, but <laughs> it might be pretty. And it's not pretty all the time when we wild bird hunt either. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's particularly if you're pheasant hunting with running yeah. birds. Or, oh, gosh. <laughs> So, you know, that can be a challenge. So, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Moving over to strategy, um, this sort of um, dovetails a little bit into new handler thoughts, mm. you know. Uh, a lot of new handlers will overhandle their dog. You know, you'll talk to a new handler in the blind and he'll say, well, I was thinking of going to that left corner first and then, Maybe going to the middle and then maybe uh, going to the back right. What do you think? And I'll say, I'm just going to turn my dog loose. And <laughs> for the first 15 minutes, as long as he stays inbounds, I want him using all of his brain power finding the next bird. Mm. And then as the brace develops, if you keep track of obviously where your birds have been found and where your bracemates birds have been found. And if there's an obvious quadrant of the field where there's been no birds found, then that might be a good place to take your dog to for the last mm. 10 minutes or so. But this whole idea of marshalling your dog around the field, no, I want my dog to use all his senses. I want him to use the wind. I want him to um, 
not be concerned about my commands. I want him to go out there and find birds. Yeah. <laughs> and um, young handlers, and I don't say this from an age perspective, just an experience perspective, feel as though control is so important. Mm. And it's really not. Mm. It's really not. Because you can control a dog at 200 yards. He doesn't have to be 30 yards from you. Yeah. So again, it's that teamwork and how you- You're letting your dog do what, do what they were bred to do and, and do their job. Go, just go yeah, find but the, the, the training, just like I described earlier, means that, you know, a really good dog that you brought up, right, yeah. checks in with you and he's comfortable being 200 yards away and you're not nervous whistling at him to come back. Because sure. then all, all that happens is you get what we call a yo-yo dog, right? <laughs> so the dog runs out in a straight direction, straight away from you because he's all excited. You whistle at him, he turns around and comes straight back to you. Yeah. Then you release him and he goes out again. Well, you know, 50% of the time, his nose isn't in the wind when he's doing that. <laughs> right. That's so true. And he's covering the same country. So that's yeah. not really a good bird finding. Totally. Study. Yeah. So, oh, that's, that's, that's a good piece of advice. Even for me, I'm like, Ooh, I need to, I need to remember that. Cause the, you know, there's, there's times you want to, again, I, I, I want to have that, con- that false sense of control when it's like, as long as he's, like you said, checking in, turning, if I need to turn, let, let the dog do, do what they're going to do. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, can, so. can you talk about the uh, the apprentice program that uh, Nashra has? And that's it's, I don't know, it might be called apprentice or mentorship because uh-huh. um, that was something I was able to. Uh, I think Andy Andy might have mentored me one, and you might have walked with me another brace. Uh-huh. Sure. And I know that was a really valuable thing for me to have. Again, brand new to it. And can you talk a little bit about that that program and what yeah. it is? So, you know, Nashra is a game, right? And so. It's a game where it's with our bird dogs, but the best hunting dog isn't necessarily going to win an Astra event because it's a game. There's things to know. And um, again, one of them is typically a new handler will overhandle. So the mentoring program is an opportunity for a new handler to have somebody walk with them and basically talk them through the brace, assist them in every way, give them tips on where to go, give them tips on simple things, how to approach a dog on point. Almost every beginner gets that wrong, and I can go into that a little bit. Um, Being aware of the brace mate, keeping a peripheral eye on where the brace mate, little things like, you know, when your dog goes on point, if your brace mate is backing, then this is a time to be nervous because you've got a new handler going into a dog on point is nervous, it's competitive. You've got another dog in the field. You've got another handler in the field. You've got uh, two judges in the field. Um, you may not be far away from the gallery. And so a mentor is a good guy to say, okay, you know, take a good look around. Make sure you know where all your safe shots are. Just slow everything down. You know, typically a a new handler would rush up to a fine, rush, 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 get there out of breath, you know, forget to load the gun, forget to do some basic stuff, trip over their feet, you know, (laughs) walk into the bird, bust the bird. And so um, an experienced handler can can coach in that regard and, and really make it more fun for the entrant because, what we want is everybody to have fun. And, you know, the new guy of today is a judge of tomorrow. 
is a field trial chairman of next year, is the regional champion after that, and then helps guide the club in the future and takes his turn by sitting on the board. And so that's what we want because we were all there at one point. And when I started, we didn't have the mentor program. And I was scared to death. I was so nervous. I mean, before it was my time to go in the blind, I swear to God, I'd go to the bathroom like four times. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, t- I mean, yeah, because you just don't know what to, you know, you can watch it from the gallery, but once you're, yeah. you're walking out there, your adrenaline's going, a lot of things okay. are, are firing at one time. Yeah, an easy thing is, you know, as, as I mentioned, one thing that people always get wrong is the way they approach a bird when a dog is on point. Mm. So if a dog's on point, then obviously the wind direction is coming from the bird to the dog, right? What most people do is they'll walk right next to the dog, walk in front of the dog's nose towards where they think the bird is. Mm. It's a major problem. Why is it a major problem? Three things. One is you cannot now see your dog. Mm. So your dog could be creeping in behind you and often will. And the reason he'll creep in behind you is when you're walking in front of him, you're breaking the scent cone because you're now walking between the dog and the bird. So what I teach people to do, and I do it myself, I'll walk way wide of where I think the bird is until I feel the wind hitting both ears equally on the back of my head. So I know now I'm going to walk in a path directly to my dog, knowing that somewhere along that path is the bird. I'm going to, my face is going to be showing to my dog. My dog is much less likely to move if he knows I'm looking at him. I mean, intimidating is not right, but he knows I've got my eye on him, right? And as soon as he thinks about taking a step, I can either tell him whoa, or I can put my hand up in a visual gesture for whoa, and that's how I teach whoa, both audibly and visually, and you're not breaking the scent cone and you will get much better scores on your fines. Real simple. Nobody thinks of doing that. That is a, that's gold. That's a gold nugget. (laughs) That's a gold nugget. So that's what a mentor can do. That's what a mentor can do. That is fantastic. Take through some of those really basic things that in one 30 minute brace can, can be worth 10 braces of a young handler trying to figure it out for themselves and wondering why the judge is saying behind them, Hey, your dog's walking in behind you. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, last kind of thing on Nasher I wanted to ask you is so a lot. I've I've heard people say, Mm -hmm. um, Nasher is probably the most like actual bird hunting or wild bird hunting. Would you agree with that? And if you do or don't, the second part is, do you, I guess your personal dogs, do you train them differently or is it, is it very similar with how, you, if you're training them for Nastra, it's going to translate very well to wild bird hunting? Um, for the most part, yes. Um, I do think it's the best event because it most closely mimics wild bird hunting because I'm a wild bird guy first and a Nastra competitive guy second. Is it 100% transferable? 95%. The major difference is when you're hunting wild birds, be it um, roosters 
And I say roosters, not hens, because hens tend to hold tighter. Chucker, blue quail, any bird that um, walks around a lot. What you really want in a wild bird dog is for that dog to keep in contact with that bird, but not push that bird. So you, you don't want to, you know, walk 500 yards to your, to your dog on point, And then you look in front of the dog, no birds, relocate the dog. The dog goes up another 200 yards and then points. Well, you, you wish you'd known that a while ago. Um, the, the difference with Nastra is in order for us to have objective scoring, our objective scoring says that the find or the point is only scorable if the dog is on point, stationary, not moving, um, when the bird is flushed. So if the bird moves, if it leaves from its resting place and starts walking, it's technically flushed. So if your dog is moving at that point, relocating on that bird itself in a Nastra event, probably not going to get a score for that find. So that's the difference. Um, but compared to every other game, be it um, NAFTA, AKC, um, some of these other hunt tests uh, or, or hunting events like Bird Dog Challenge, you know, speed yeah, yeah. events where a good run is three minutes and those dogs are running with collars and are often controlled with collars. They're stopped with collars. Um, I think Nastra is by, by far the best, by far the best. Yeah. Um, I think a perfect Nastra dog is one that's, that's steady to flush, breaks on the shot. Mm. I'll tell you why. I think that's the best wild bird dog too. Mm. I know you like to hunt uh, Sharptail. Sharptail, uh, famous for doing a popcorn flush. Mm. So dog goes on point. One single bird might get up before you get there, mm. right? Yep. So if the dog now takes off because it breaks on the flush, runs through the rest of that flock of Sharptails, yeah. you're out of business. Yeah. Or in Nastra, by comparison, that dog gets up, and flushes right towards the gallery or right towards the woods. And you and I are both trialed in places where all the birds end up in the woods at the end. Of the day. <laughs> right. Would you prefer that your dog is still standing there because you have not yet shot your gun? So you call safety. Hopefully your brace mate's dog is now chasing that bird, comes back with his tongue hanging out. In the meantime, you've got the field to yourself for five minutes. So <laughs> There's that strategy. Fighting. There's that strategy. Well, it's... It's the way you train the dog. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm trying to find examples that a really, really good Nastra dog, a one that you can handle on safety birds, i.e. stop chasing a safety bird, um, is that dog that will not chase the single sharp tail that gets up mm. when the rest, when you haven't flushed the rest of the flock yet. Yeah. And so again, um, I think Nastra is about as close yeah. as it can get to perfect. To be yeah. honest. So, sorry, last question that I thought of while you were talking about that. So, with your personal dogs, then mm -hmm. when you're wild bird hunting, they go on point. Mm -hmm. Will you will you let them relocate on their own, or will you no. give them a signal Typically that I they won't. can? Okay. Typically, I won't. And and another reason is it's really hard to let a dog get loose while bird hunting and expect them to 
Because think about it. Wild bird hunting, they've got a collar on. Sure. When you field trialing, they don't. So all of a sudden, so wild bird hunting, you've got a lot of control. Um, field trialing, you don't. You let a dog get away with things when they're wild bird hunting. And now next weekend, you field trial with them and you have no way of correcting them. That doesn't seem... That doesn't seem like the right thing to do. The other reason that I'm that I trained to break break on the shot has real good um, transference between field trialing and uh, wild bird hunting, and it's this: I believe dogs try and short circuit the commands. Mm. Give you an example: dog Buster here. Dog comes to you, right? doing great standing by your side you get talking to your friend all of a sudden buster leaves wait a second you've given him the command but you haven't yet undone the command right this sounds contrived stay with me i've got a i've got a direction here so i believe that to properly train a dog you give a command and you tell him when it's okay to not comply with that command so my release command with a dog is a tap on the head. So whenever I release the dog, either from a breakaway at a field trial or to let them uh, coming off a bike or whatever, to tap on the head. So when I praise a dog, I don't tap him on his head. Mm. I stroke down his side. So there's a difference in touch. What I'm getting at here is when a dog goes on point, if you train with quail and you shoot every single quail, Dog is on point. He knows at some point in the very near future, he's going to have that quail in his mouth, mm -hmm. right? You've just paid $5 for that quail. You're certainly not going to let it fly <laughs> off. You want your money's worth. You want to be able to shoot it. Dog is on point. He knows sometime soon that bird's going to be in his mouth. Dogs will short circuit there because you, you haven't given them a cue. So if they break on the flush, they chase it. If you haven't shot yet, if it's a non-performing bird, goes out. Good dog, good retrieve, off you go. What I like to do is to let the dog break on the shot. The shot is a very clear cue. It's, it's something that says, okay, now you don't have to stand there on point. It's something very definitive. Dog, you're not making the decision of when you can move. I'm conditioning you to the shot. That's good. And so that's what I do. Even when I'm training with um, homing pigeons, I'll let the pigeon fly. I'll let the dog watch the pigeon fly. And I'll let the pigeon be 100 yards away. Then I'll shoot my shotgun in the air. Mm. Only then can the dog move. Because what you're doing is breaking that cycle. So they're not automatically knowing that they'll taste the bird. Because pretty yeah. soon in a field trial situation where the dog doesn't have a collar on, therefore doesn't have you, your ability mm. to exert control, sure. They start taking half a step. Oh, I got away with that one. Okay, yeah. great. Let me try another. By the end of the field trial season, you've got a dog that won't stand his birds. Yeah. And so by breaking that cycle and conditioning the release being something really definitive, like a tap on the head, a physical tap on the head, or a gun going off, be a starter pistol or a shotgun, there's a real, there's no way a dog can confuse that and, yeah. and take the very decision. Dis very distinct, have. yeah. Yeah, and that transfers to both wild bird hunting and field trying. That's great. That is great, Alan. Love it. Um, well, Alan, as we as we start to wrap up here, uh, one of the things mm -hmm. I like to ask everyone is, uh, you know, let's let's say there's uh, someone new out there who's listening, 
And uh, maybe they're heading into their first uh, bird season coming up. Maybe they just got a new puppy. Maybe they want to try some, some trials or Nastra. What's, what's a piece of advice that you would give them uh, out there right now? Um, there's so many unknowns, particularly if you didn't grow up in a hunting family, I would, I would definitely suggest finding a mentor and it could be, um, the guide at the local hunt preserve. It could be, um, if you want to join Nastra could be, you know, calling the local president, they're all, all the details are on the, the national and the local website. Hey, I'm thinking of coming. Um, I would suggest that that person join, um, because that means that the insurance is valid and ride some braces, um, with a qualified judge, a very experienced judge. I mean, just bring your dog and have your dog walk around the gallery and meet other dogs and hear the guns go off. I mean, presumably your dog is, you know, um, is gun broke, you know, it's not going to be afraid of, I mean, I wouldn't bring a six week old pup out. I mean, <laughs> right. I'm talking about a dog that you hunted with and just get into the feel of it. See how anxious your dog is around all the ATVs, all the shooting, all the other dogs, get the dog conditioned to that ride with the judge and really see if it's something you want to do. Stage two would be find a really experienced handler. Um, who's a good communicator you vibe with, um, not necessarily the winningest all guy at that club, but somebody that's really empathetic, sure. right? He's where you're coming from. sees where you're trying to get to walk with him for a few braces, yeah. put your orange jacket on and say, can I just walk with you and just watch? And, and then, um, you'll know firsthand what it's all about without the stress of you being there, paying your entry fee and messing up and getting all hot and bothered and never coming back. And then, you know, bring your dog, Br bring it before the trial starts, clean fields with your dog before, uh, the trial starts, uh, meet people at that club and say, Hey, where do you train? Hey, maybe I can join that club. Would, could you help me? I'd, uh, my dog's, you know, he's dropping the bird 10, 10 feet from me on the retrieve. I'd love it if I could get some help on mm. having the dog bring it. I mean, that's what I'd do. I think it's, it would be the chance of it being successful by you turning up with your dog, entering yeah. a trial, never been to a trial before, and it being a pleasant experience is remote. Mm. It's a remote chance. Uh, that's really good. Steps. That's really good advice. I like that a lot. Yeah. A lot of people just have to, you have to be, be bold and willing to ask questions, like you said, and, and, you know, just, just walk along. There's that itch, even inside of me, there's an itch to, Oh, I, I got to have my, my own dog there and run my own dog, but yeah. you know, don't be afraid to make the drive and just, just walk a couple of braces. Don't enter your dog, walk, ask questions. And I think that's, that's really, really sound advice. I think just from management of family time on a weekend too, for somebody not wanting to burn all his uh, kitchen passes, um, at one time, if you go and watch a trial, you can just go for, like you said, a couple of braces, Yeah, go for the morning, you know, tell the kids I'll be home for Sunday lunch with grandma, but I'm just going to play with the dogs for the morning. And it's not very yeah. committing because when you end up, uh, entering trials, even if you just run one dog, yeah. you know, typically there's two fields, yeah. uh, each field is a competition in its own right, a field and B field. So, you know, at an extreme, you might have first brace on a field, yeah. 
a 16th brace on beef field. So you <laughs> okay. be there all yeah, day. It could happen. So if you don't enter your dog, again, it's a lower committing way of just finding out if it's really for you. Yeah, it's really good. All right. Last section uh, we'll wrap up with here. Uh, rapid fire round. And I'm just going to mm-hmm. ask you uh, a few kind of questions here and just give me your off the cuff answer and we'll wrap this thing up. Sure. Um, okay. For you, Alan, what came first? The gun, the dog or hunting? Uh, the gun, the gun, the gun okay. a copy of pointing dog journal, a dog, and then hunting. Okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. That was very distinct, uh, <laughs> timeline in your, in your story. <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you still, do you still have that Benelli you were given? I do. Nice. In fact, it's right behind me as we sit here. Oh yeah. I was speaking at some of those. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful fireplace. Um, well, this, that kind of leads into our next question. What gun are you carrying into the field? Uh, I'm going to ask you two parts. What are you carrying? Maybe it's different. Maybe it's not. What mm-hmm. are you carrying for an astro trial? And what are you carrying mm-hmm. for wild bird hunting? An astro trial, I carry um, a Benelli Supersport, the 20 gauge carbon Supersport. Okay. I have a sling on it. Okay. And um, I like, you know, Psychologically, I like the extra shot uh, because obviously if you miss a bird, you don't get the retrieve. But quite honestly, in reality, when a quail takes off, you barely have time to shoot twice. Never mind three times. Um, but it's kind of a knockabout gun, you know. Um, and so I start off at the line with it over my shoulder so that I can concentrate 100% on my dog and my stopwatch. And, you know, I've got a system. Sure. And then um, my wild bird hunting dog is a Spanish uh, round action side-by-side Gruyere. Okay. okay. So I, I bought those. My wife and I bought not a matching pair. They're not sequential numbers, but we have the same gun and bought them like 12 years ago and just love that gun. I love the way it feels. I love mm. it. Even if, even if I go out and hunt wild birds and never take a shot all day, I still want to carry that gun. <laughs> uh, that's when you know you like it. D- sorry, did you did you say the gauge of that one? Twenty, both twenty. Okay. okay. Yeah. Nice. Yes. I'm yeah. And so it. I keep my 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 truck stocked with twenty gauge. I mean, yeah. I, I think I you know I've had times when I'd like to get a sixteen, and I do have a couple of twenty eights uh, that I really like, but. I'm on the road a lot and sure. um, I need something that I can find ammo everywhere I go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> 20 gauge is it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, most clay, uh, clay, clays you've ever hit in a row. <laughs> this, is a, this is a new question I've been asking. It's been this, fun this, to, uh... this is a really interesting study in, in my psychology. Not very many, probably <laughs> seven or eight. Okay. Okay. And my wife loves to shoot clays and I like to go with her. I'm an instinctive shot. So I never shoot from a uh, gun up position. I always shoot from, I always imagine I'm going in to flush a bird. Yep. So the gun is always down. So you've got to do a complete mount and I'm an instinctive shot. I just look at the bird. Don't think about anything else. When I feel the right amount of pressure on my cheek and my shoulder, I pull the trigger. Mm. Um, that's a lot different than a sporting clay shot. And so because I'm an instinctive shot, I really get bored shooting sporting. <laughs> clay. I get bored the fifth time 
that clay is going to fly in that very predictable trajectory. (laughs) And so I get really lazy. Um, You're like, the the dog's not pointing it. What's the point now? (laughs) Yeah. If I know where the bird is going, if I know that that clay is going to start on the left, it's going to clear that tree. It's going to start dropping right there. I know I'm going to break it right there. I'm so bored. I I don't want to know where it's coming and where it's going. I want to, I want to react to it, you know? So I get, I, I, I'm, I'm not a uh, plan shooter. I'm yeah. a reactive, instinctive shooter. That's so, good. That's good. So for that reason, I don't do well. At- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, I mean, I'll say seven or eight is not the worst I've heard on here. So you're, you're, you're in the upper half. And I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there might've been times, you know, I might shoot a wobble trap better because that's more instinctive okay. shooting. You never know if sure. it's going left or right. Sure. Um, but yeah, I lose concentration. Really quickly. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, next one, favorite dog breed besides the ones that you've owned. So if you've owned it, so I think you said you owned a pointer, right? Mm-hmm. And a cock, yep. cocker. And so a cocker. Can, so, yep. So, so favorite breed besides uh, the ones. I'd have a Brittany. Really? Oh, yeah. I'd have All a Brittany. Right. And I'll tell you why. As well as uh, bottom and endurance on a dog all about brains a dog can look beautiful on point but if they don't have the brains it really doesn't matter and i've seen a lot of really smart britneys i've seen a lot of really smart britneys so yeah probably a britney you never know i might just call nolan one of these days (laughs) right sell me one probably probably couldn't afford it but (laughs) um that, yeah, that's good. Britney. That's good. I always like to say, so a couple guests will say Britney's and I always have to say a disclaimer. I did not pay you to say that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I know. I mean, there's, there's some, there's some really good Britney's. I mean, yeah. that, that buddy dog, Nolan's dog, they say was so smart. Mm. I mean, he would go off the line and people would, would see him running around the field and he'd have this little head twitch when he'd run past a bird. And I don't think this is a folklore because I've heard this from a lot of different people. And then he'd make a second pass around the field and point the birds. He made a first pass to figure out where they were. I mean, just, you know, how do you teach that? <laughs> That's wild. That is wild. Oh, yeah. sounds like an incredible dog. Um, a state you have not hunted yet, but would like to. Well, probably goes back to what we talked about with rough grouse. I think I really need to get up to Michigan and Wisconsin and chase around in those woods. I mean, I, you know, I've got a fair amount of coverage on the Western States, but that's, that's probably one I, I need to do. And who knows? I might love it and give it to <laughs> my Western States. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, all, it's also addicting. It's also yeah, addicting. Probably. probably. Uh, favorite bird to hunt and why? I think, I think I know what your answer is, but, but explain yeah, it's, why it's Chucka. Um, it's the terrain. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Hell's Canyon's a very famous Chucka place. I mean, when you get up there and, and you, and you know, the birds are hard to come by. I mean, typically you start with a 2000 foot climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, so, you know, you've already got a lot invested by the time you get, you get to the bird zone. And so, um, definitely chucker. I mean, that country, um, not everybody likes it. Not every dog can handle it. And, um, again, going back to how we started, how I got into hunting, there'll be a time when 
plantation quail will be my bird of choice <laughs> because I won't be able to climb 2,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> Things will change. But right now I can. So uh, that's, that's, my, that's my favorite hunt. That's yeah. November. That's my yeah. November hunt. I wait until it um, started to cool off a little bit. Sure. Uh, it's snaky country up there. You know, it's dry and rocky outcrops. So like to have at least three good freezing nights, let the yeah. snakes go to bed and yeah. like to get up there before the snow comes. So that's my November. I, I go there right before Thanksgiving for two weeks. Mm, that's awesome. That yeah. is awesome. Well, yeah. last one. Uh, what is your beverage of choice after a hunt? Ha. Well, if I wasn't driving, it would be Pendleton's whiskey, but one of my problems is I give all my water to the dogs. And so I'm <laughs> so dehydrated by the time I get over home or even a field trial weekend, I'll get home on a Sunday night and I'm yeah. so dehydrated. Yeah. So just a beer. Yeah. A Stella there probably. There you go. Stella's, you know, uh, all right. otherwise I won't be able to drive home. I'll be too loopy. If I <laughs> right. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. You're my first uh, one that said Stella on here. So I like Stella. Yeah. It's got that's a European flair to it. Yeah. Already, so. yeah. They're always, they're always good. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. awesome, Alan. Well, Alan, thank you so much, man. This was so much fun. Uh, it's really fun to get to know you more. Again, you've—I just want to say personally, thank you for just the, the time you've invested into me, uh, getting into Nastra and showing me the ropes and explaining some of the some of the little things that you know a new guys not going to think about. So I, I really appreciate well, that. Well, it's our pleasure, and you've got a you've got a great way with your dogs and uh, the way you approach the game and. Um, we consider you a valuable member of our club and um, glad to help you. There's lots of us in the club that are very happy to help you and uh, take you to the, to the next stage. Well, thank um, you. Until you get really, really good. I mean, you're just good right now, but when you're really, <laughs> really good, nobody wants to help you. So get all the help you can right yeah, now. Yeah, you know, soak it all up. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's kind of, that's true too, because... <laughs> it's true. Oh, well, so much fun. Thanks for doing this and carving out time of your night. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again real soon. You bet. Take care. Thanks, Alan. All right. That's a wrap of episode 60 with Alan Hyman. Alan, thank you once again for your wisdom, your friendship, and your support into uh, Nastra and just learning through your experiences. So, Everyone, um, don't forget, if you could, uh, if you haven't already, left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you could head over there, leave a review, a rating. Love reading those and seeing how the show has inspired you or encouraged you in some way or another, whether it's bird dogs, hunting, I don't know, whatever it is in life. <laughs> um, we'd really appreciate that. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure to share it on social media. Uh, tag the Upland Rookie Podcast. Tag um, Upland Rookie Podcast and maybe some of your early season photos. I'd love to see uh, what you guys have been experiencing out there and uh, love to reshare some of those as well. All right, guys, I think that's about everything. Don't forget, hats are on sale now. Once they are gone, they will be gone. Uh, 38 bucks, uh, free shipping. Not free shipping. Shipping's included. I built shipping into the price. You know what I mean. So uh, grab a hat if you would like one. I'll throw some stickers in there as well for podcast listeners. All right, guys. Until next time, put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog. Take care. Also, enjoy this little bonus clip that Alan and I talked about at the end.
So Alan, is, is training your own dog versus sending your dog to a pro? Like, like where are you on that scale with, you know, getting, sending it to a pro to do it or, you know, kind of doing it DIY style yourself? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and again, we sort of touched on the reason that we love to hunt is we're in, in the field with our best buddy, our dog. And, and I, I think I've mentioned that in my opinion, the best performing Nastra teams are those where the dog and the handler is a team. And so um, if you let somebody else train your dog, then you haven't been with your dog every step of the way mm. from, from being a puppy to being a high performing dog. And so, so why doesn't everybody train their dog is the question. I mean, there's, and people have asked me, which book did you read? Well, my dog's 13 months and this dog says that by 12 months, he should be doing this. And I'm like, well, therein lies the problem. And here's, I, I train my own dogs now. This new puppy is the first dog I've trained from start to finish. Hmm. And um, I had the time um, and I know what I like. Uh, in terms of the way the dog performs. The difference between a pro and an amateur is two critical differences. One is a pro reads a dog very well. When I say read a dog, you might say, well, what does that mean? A pro will anticipate what a dog's going to do mm. before the dog knows it's going to do it. Mm. They'll set it up by the motion of the dog. You just, you read it, you know? Um, if you're an educator, you're, you, you know what your kids are going to do before Bedlam breaks loose. The other thing that a pro is very good at, that a, a um, home trainer is not good at, is timing. When you stimulate a dog, and again, remember, we stimulate a dog not to teach a command, to enforce a command that they already know. Dogs have a very short memory. And so you have to make sure that the command and upon refusal, the stimulation are very close together in time. Some people say less than two seconds. So if you can read a dog and know what he's going to do, and if you can anticipate him blowing you off, not coming when you say, or not walking when you're supposed to, or not delivering to hand, if you can't correct at the right time, I mean, very hard show a dog consistency. Mm. So reading a dog and being able to time and therefore control the amount of stimulation is what makes the pros consistent in the way they train the dog. Mm. And most, you know, you know, around home, you might not let your dog on the sofa. Oh, the wife and the kid, when you're not gone, dog's on the sofa looking for Cheerios down the back, right? Yeah. Inconsistency. Yeah. Dogs, I mean, dogs need consistency and a pro will give them that because they will read a dog properly and they will stimulate timely and at an appropriate level, probably less of a level than an amateur would. Mm. That's why it's worth, until you feel confident that you as an amateur can fulfill both yeah. of those requirements, have somebody train you dog. That's really well said. 